0: And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him to the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? I am a virgin. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Thanks, now. All right, well um so here's the deal if you're not familiar with uh how this works within church like i, I wasn't the, the tradition that i got saved into um, wasn't something that celebrated advent i didn't know what advent was actually until i came to redemption church to be honest with you um, and it was something that i we started singing christmas music kind of early before christmas was i knew that was kind of a thing but i didn't know what advent was and if you're not familiar with the church calendar meaning um Historically, the church celebrates certain things in a rhythm every single year. Uh, Always during this time, the church has celebrated Advent. It's the the weeks leading up to the coming of Jesus Christ. Advent means arrival, right? So there's this waiting for uh, that day. Now, um, there's some things that I need to say out out of the gate uh, that, that are probably important. Um, if you don't know the story, if you, when you open your Bible, you'll see from, from Malachi, at the end of Malachi, your Old Testament to your New Testament, maybe you have like a blank page, or maybe you see, just see a, a, a page that says New Testament. Well, that, that page, that blank page, or that page that says New Testament represents 400 years. So here's a bunch of people who have been told that this Messiah is coming. Now, I need you to feel, um, or at least Rolodex in your mind, a moment in your life where you felt like God was not saying anything. Like something bad was happening or you knew it shouldn't be like this and you felt like you're praying and you're praying and you're asking and you're wondering and God is silent. God, where are you at? Now I need you to exponentially grow that to 400 years past your lifetime, past your children's lifetime, past your children's 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 lifetime. And here's a group of people waiting 400 years for the story they know to be true to be consummated. They're waiting for this story, and so we want to dial into that. Unfortunately, here's what happened. Our culture, specifically in the Western world, does not like waiting, FYI. And because we don't like waiting, that 400-year period that we should kind of sit in during this time in our church calendar, we've kind of eschatologically tricked ourselves. We've thought of ourselves, um, uh, how do I say this, the end is different now, and so because we don't like waiting, we try to fill ourselves with the idea of a good thing now. So, so, so we're not thinking through, and so this is something that maybe um, you've kind of maybe experienced at other churches. If you grew up in church, or attention that I, I can at least speak to right now as a pastor. I, I want us to see and understand that there's this idea of Christmas that absolutely should be celebrated, and I want us to enjoy. And yes, family is a good thing, right? And there's there's something exciting about how the kids get all jacked about doing the Christmas stuff. Those are good things, right? But, but with that, those things are only good if we're living in the tension of the idea that there's something better than those things, or what makes those things good is the real story of Christmas. Now, that's so cliche to say, right, because this is where I lay out the baby in a manger and all these things, but the reality is there's something going on that we are tricking ourselves during this time and not getting excited about the right things. And, And I would love for the next four weeks to t- teach on four words, but we're not going to teach on uh, uh, four words the four words that I would highly encourage you to look into to teach your kids around this time to continue to put in front of yourself we won't talk about them much but just so you can throw them out there at least meditate uh, t- uh, meditate on them one is the word generosity, one is the word gratitude, one is the word enough, and one is the word stewardship I, I think there should be something about to t- Fight against the consumer culture of this time that you need that thing. What does it mean to be grateful? What does it mean to say that's enough? I'm good. I have enough. What does it mean to be a good steward of what you already have? Like so. So there's this there's this tension that I, I want to bring up now. Um, This is only our second year doing it. Every time I prepare for Advent, I feel like I'm going to get up and be Scrooge. Like, you guys all should feel terrible about wanting gifts for Christmas. And that's not my goal. I said it last year, and I'll say it again. I love me some Christmas, okay? We don't celebrate before Thanksgiving, number one rule in the Myers household. But I promise you, Friday morning, we wake up, we're laying out Christmas trees, lights, stockings. We're getting down for the cause, okay? We're playing Christmas music, and I'm waiting to sing that, no, not divine. Right? I'm waiting for that. I'm waiting for that. Right? Okay. Yeah. No, I'm waiting for it. Um, okay. So, so I'm, I'm all about this season and what it does. Um, but I, I think more what, what has happened in the church calendar and what we we're pretty liturgical church, meaning we're, we're going to stick pretty close to what the church is celebrating um, historically. Um, this year in Advent, we're going to actually do it a little bit different. And I know it's only our second year doing it. And and usually what should take place is we'll take a week talking about faith and a week talking about joy, a week talking about love, and a week talking about hope. Um, But we're actually not going to do that. We're going to do this a a little bit different. Um, What I want to present to you guys, and um, I think it's important for us to realize, is not how we can feel bad about this time, but rather to see this time the way it's supposed to be seen by seeing it from a different perspective. So here's what I mean. For the next four weeks, we're going to look at, Uh, The story of Christmas, Advent, through four ways, okay? Um, Week one, and I think I have these, we're going to look at it through the perspective of an unmarried, pregnant, poor, teenage woman. Then we're going to look at it from someone who's a lowly worker, two people who are lowly workers. Then we're going to look at it from the, the perspective of Jesus as the refugee, And then we're going to look at it from the perspective of after their prime. Two prophets who are long past um, a prophet and a prophetess who are long past their time. um, How do they get at doing this? Now here's why this is important in our approaches here. Um, Because restaurants, if you don't know, in the West Valley... Obviously, is exploding. I mean, I don't think we can grow any further outside of living on Lake Pleasant, which apparently that's happening. Um, but in that direction, the south, obviously, we're getting oh 303, the 404, the 505. Who knows how far we're going to go? Um, but It just keeps exploding. And every time all, all these things continue to grow in all these different directions, obviously, commerce is growing, right? So our economy is booming and, and restaurants are opening. And if there is a cool kind of restaurant, a hip kind of restaurant, what usually happens 99% of the time is there's kind of an opening eve that, that takes place. So if, it, if the restaurant is supposed to open on a Monday, that Sunday night, the owner will bring all of his friends, um, all of his family, people that he cares, people that he uh, knows about, and then even people who are kind of influential in the same area. So if you're going to open up like a crepe bar or something like that, you open up people who are in the food industry, come see what's happening, and it's kind of this opening before you see what the actual final product is, you as uh, this group of people get to see it, Right? And it's very meticulous and very specific towards a group of people that are involved or at least important to the owner. Here's what's amazing. If you can leave these four. Is that me? I'm sorry if that's me. Um, uh, What's amazing about these four. It just sounds like a velociraptor is behind me so I keep freaking out. Um, What's amazing about these four weeks that we're going to go to is this is God's way before Jesus comes on the scene and says, hey, Repent believe. I'm here. The stories, it's, it's now. The kingdom of God is at hand. We get kind of this opening eve, that this Sunday night before account of who Jesus invites to his store. Who does Jesus first tell? Who does God the Father in heaven, using the power of the Holy Spirit, announce to the world? Who does he bring and invite to his store? And it is, in one word, That we are going to look at over and over and over the marginalized. Our goal this season is not to feel bad about the things that we have. That's not the goal. The goal is to see the things that we have for the perspective in which we need to see them. And so I I want to give you a definition of marginalized. And I think we, we have that definition for you as well. Um, here, when, I, when I say the, the word marginalized, this is what I mean. And I'm going to talk about why this is important. And I'm just setting up these four weeks for us. The word marginalized is to relegate to an unimportant, powerless position within a society or a group. Okay? So here's what God has done historically. He is the worst captain at recess ever. Because what he is doing is he's looking at the stuttering Moses and he's going, I'll take him. God, are, are you sure? Yeah, yeah. I'll take the weak shepherd boy. I think that's a bad idea. The old man Abraham, give me him. God, God, that's a, you sure you want this squad? And so here is God inviting in the marginalized people that otherwise are after their prime, before their prime, or don't have a chance for their prime, that from a societal point of view have been neglected to, and I quote, to an unimportant and powerless position. We are going to see the Advent story, the coming, the arrival of Jesus through their perspective. Now, there's a, um, a, a great blog, this guy, he's crazy. He's, uh, some things that he says is absolutely belong with the coexist stickers in the trash. But he, what he says is he makes cert, uh, th- this blog, he writes this blog, and he makes certain statements that are really good, and other ones that are, I would highly suggest to stay away from. Um, I'll share his name, and you can look it up and see how crazy he is. His name's Brian Zahand. Um, but he had a, a, a really great blog, I thought, and it was just called, My Problem with the Bible Is... And I want to read just a portion of that. And it's kind of a long quote, but I want you to track with me why we're taking the approach that we are. Because I think this um, it's helpful. I wouldn't give you something this long if I didn't think it was helpful. This is what he says. I have a problem with the Bible. Here's my problem. I'm an ancient Egyptian, a comfortable Babylonian, a Roman in his villa. That's my problem. See, I'm trying to read the Bible for all it's worth, but I'm not a Hebrew slave suffering in Egypt. I'm not a conquered Judean deported to Babylon, I'm not a first century Jew living under Roman occupation. I'm a citizen of a superpower. I was born among the conquerors. I live in the empire, but I want to read the Bible and think it's talking to me. This is a problem. One of the most remarkable things about the Bible is that, it is, uh, that in it, we find the narrative told from the perspective of the poor, the oppressed, the enslaved, the conquered, the occupied, the defeated. This is what makes it prophetic. We know that history is written by the winners. This is true. Except in the case of the Bible, it's the opposite. This is the subversive genius of the Hebrew Hebrew prophets. They wrote from a bottom-up perspective. Imagine a history of colonial America written by the Cherokee Indians and African slaves. That would be a different way of telling the story. And that's what the Bible does. It's the story of Egypt told by the slaves, the story of Babylon told by the exiles, the story of Rome told by the occupied. Every story is told from a vantage point, it has a bias. The bias of the Bible is from the vantage point of the underclass. I have a problem with the Bible, but all is not lost. I just need to read it standing on my head. I need to change my perspective. If I can accept that the Bible is trying to lift up those who are unlike me, then perhaps I can read the Bible right. So the idea is that Christianity has never been, hear me, it has never been and it will never be a power play. And every time it has in society throughout the generations before us, it has stunk with compromise. Whether that be Constantine making Christianity the ultimate religion in Rome, stunk with compromise. Whether that be the Holy Wars, stunk with compromise. Whether that be Western religion in, in our current reality today, stinks with compromise. And so what if we Rolodex the clock and see it from the marginalized? What if we can look at the story from the marginalized the question i want to ask for the next four weeks is what can we learn from the marginalized what can we do what can we learn from the marginalized with that said if you already haven't open your bibles to luke chapter one Randy came up and read um i'm going we're gonna get right at our text we're going to read the story of the virgin mary um, and I'm going to try to create a tension, right? I want to get at the grit, the nitty gritty. I remember when I was a youth pastor, um, I tried to bring in one Christmas, like a bunch of like cow poop and stuff to make the youth room smell, you know, all these creative youth pastor ways to do stuff. Um, right. And unfortunately I didn't smell at all. I was like, what's that all about? But, um. But I, I, the goal in that time was to kind of get at the nitty-gritty of what Christmas really would have smelled like if, if this, this baby was in a manger. And so what we're going to try to do is try to hear this story very contextually, okay? And so we're going to read the story of, of Mary. And then we're going to predominantly learn from her, extract from her song that she sings so that during this season we can find out what we need to learn. Um, So we're going to pick up in verse 26. We're going to read verses 26 through 38. Then we're going to pick it up in verse 46 and I'll kind of explain the in-between. Let me just kind of catch you up because it's only 26 verses that I'd need to catch you up on. The book of Luke is written by a guy named Luke. Uh, If you don't know, he's a physician. Um, He essentially from the jump of uh, the gospel of Luke says, hey, here's why I'm writing this, this book. I'm writing this book because there's a bunch of accounts of Jesus out there, I thought it was right for me to write my own account, so I wanted to write this account to this guy named Theophilus, and so he writes this account to this man, and he begins to tell this story. And from the beginning, he actually tells the story, the 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 coming, the arrival of the person who's going to announce Jesus. So, and it's very, it's crazy how much um, this guy who's supposed to announce Jesus, his name is John the Baptist, how much it parallels. So, so um, the the story goes: there's this guy named Zachariah. He's he's a, a priest. He's offering these sacrifices. Gets stopped dead in his tracks as you're going to have a son. And that's John the Baptist. That's the story. And from there, it immediately goes to the announcing, the arrival, this kind of 400 years we've been waiting for the consummation of this story. Here it comes to Mary. So here we go. Luke chapter one, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed. To a man whose name was Joseph, uh, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, "Greetings, O favored one! The Lord is with you." So, what we know immediately about this woman is she's not married, betrothed; she's engaged to this guy named Joseph. They they want to be married; they're going to get married. It's a little different than the context we understand, but here they are, and um, uh, here's Mary all alone, and and, uh, this angel Gabriel comes and says, "Hey." Greetings, Your favor. Now, if you don't know um, some things that we probably need to express about Mary, let's do that now because um, Protestants have been kind of weird about Mary because the Catholic Church has like, they haven't deified her, but essentially in a lot of ways almost there, right? There's this idea of like you pray to Mary. and, And so Protestants are kind of afraid, like, no, Mary's an idiot. Like we don't know, we don't deal with Mary. And it's weird because like if you read the story, if John the Baptist is a big deal because he prepares the way of the Messiah, listen to me. Mary's a big deal because she gives birth to him, y'all, okay? He, she, she is a big deal. Now, I'm not saying we need to pray to her, of course, the, but the, the idea of the, these kind of great women of faith, this, when you, when you read it, if you, you can see it in verse uh, 28, and he came to her and said, oh, greetings, oh, favored one. That, oh, favored one is one Greek word. It just means much grace. Um, ha, ha, it's come to you. Much grace has come to you. But, recognize you've been blessed. God has seen where you are. He knows you. You're favored. So all of the women that we know in the past, in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, Mary is definitely up there, if not at the top. So Protestants, don't be afraid. You're a Protestant if you're a Christian in here. Don't be afraid of Mary, okay? She's okay, right? She gave birth to Jesus. Um, Let's let's be okay with that, Um, okay? So verse 29. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Verse 29. So there's this long-awaited Messiah. Mary knows the story. The story that I just talked about, this kind of long-awaited. And, and, and now what Gabriel's starting to lay out before Mary is, honestly, I don't know any better way to say it, but it's very simple, uh, similar language to the Psalms. Like she's hearing things that he's saying there's this Messiah that's supposed to come. He's going to be in the house of Jacob. He's, he's going to rule the house of Jacob. His kingdom is never-ending. This sounds like the Messiah. And here's the first kind of announcements. Hey, guess what? he's coming. He's coming. He's going to arrive. This Messiah is going to arrive. So this is what Mary's hearing. She's kind of freaked out because she's talking to an angel. Verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Uh, Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God and behold your relative elizabeth in her old age was also uh, has also conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren verse 37 for nothing will be impossible with God, verse 38, and Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So here's the announcement. The Messiah is coming. This is, this is who's in your womb. Just so you know, you, you've got this relative who's also pregnant with somebody else that's going to announce this person. Now, remember, we were just told the story. We didn't read it. The story of John the Baptist, that's the person. John the Baptist's uh, father is Zachariah. His mother is Elizabeth, who is related to Mary. So Mary immediately goes, I got to figure out what's going on she's let's say three months pregnant two months pregnant somewhere in there elizabeth's further along she's let's say six or seven months pregnant mary goes and visits elizabeth to find out what's going on as mary arrives to elizabeth her womb jumps. John the Baptist is like, I know who's here. Okay, and so he's jumping in the womb. He's super jacked about this. Um, and John the Baptist is a wild man, so it totally makes sense. Okay, and so, so, so he, he, he's all excited. She's all excited as a mother, calls her blessed. Again, something is going on, and she's wrestling with all these things. And then she begins to sing this song. She begins to kind of announce what's going on in her heart verbally in this song or this poem of, of all that's taking place. But before we get there, I want to kind of paint what's um, here, the context. So I I said I'm going to do the best job I can to kind of explain why we're using Mary um, contextually as the first announcement. So I've already said like three times, 400 years of waiting, and here's the first announcement. Now here's what you need to understand what's so bizarre about this. The first announcement for the Messiah to not just save Israel, to not just save the house of David, to not just save you and I, but to restore all of creation is announced to a woman. Is announced to a woman. Now, in our culture, you're like, yeah. And, and maybe even not yeah. Maybe it's not even as obvious. Let me just kind of explain contextually why this is a big deal. In in the the, the first century... This would be absolutely unheard of. Let me give you some things that a woman was not allowed to do and some things that a woman had to do. So this is, this is called the second temple period in which uh, a woman would have lived in which Mary was in. They were not allowed to testify in court. So immediately Mary's going, hey, I've got an announcement. Her announcement could not even stand in court, yet Mary is chosen. They could not uh, go out into public or talk to strangers outside of being double-veiled. They had to become second-class Jews, excluded from worship, and the teaching of God with the status scarcely above that of a slave. Okay? There's a a prophet, um, not a prophet, a rabbi, Rabbi Eleazar, who said this. Listen to this. And I quote. This is what he said in the first century. Rather, should the words of the Torah, the Bible... It would be better that the words of the Bible be burned than entrusted to a woman. Whoever teaches his daughter the Torah is like one who teaches her obscenity. Okay, so women aren't that highly valued, FYI. So we can look at the story contextually, and here it is, 400 years of waiting, and it comes to a woman. God again, yeah, okay, relax, relax. I I will say, I think it's crazy that it's not just, you know, it comes to a woman, the word of God incarnate comes through a woman, right? And there's this like, it, it doesn't happen without a woman, right? So there's this idea in that culture, here God is doing something through Mary, in Mary, by Mary, ultimately for Mary, and it's this beautiful display of God saying, I don't care what you think is important. I promise you. I'm more powerful than your power plays. So I'm going to use someone that, and I quote, you would say the words of the Torah should be burned before they would be entrusted to a woman. But see, it gets worse because now Mary is not only a woman who receives a message who who honestly could not testify in court, but she is a teenage woman who is not married so at least a married woman could use her husband to announce what needs to be announced. But Mary can't even do that because she's not married. But now it gets even worse. Not only is she a teenage woman, she is a pregnant teenage woman. And by all rights and purposes, Joseph could lay down the hammer, possibly even have her killed. If you, you don't believe me. Let me show you a passage in Matthew 1. It's telling the same account of what's going on contextually for us to understand the story of Mary and the story of what's going on with Joseph. And so this is what it says in verse 18 in in, uh, Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary, Jesus, when Jesus' mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, again engaged, before they came to arrive, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Okay? Okay. So we already know that up to that point. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now I need you to hear, I need you to see between the lines here. Because she's now pregnant, not married, Joseph is going, adultery, adultery. You've slept with someone else. And I know it's so cheesy to say, but Mary's going, no, 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 it's the Lord, right? Okay? Okay. No, like like you slept with someone else. And listen to what it says, because it's important. I even think I have an underline for us. Um, uh, Because Joseph's a just man, he's unwilling to put her to shame, meaning he could put her to shame. And he resolved to divorce her quietly, meaning he could make her a public spectacle. Now, I'm just telling you, the reality is we, we, you can look up on YouTube videos right now, and this is in Muslim culture, um, but emulate some of the demeaning uh, things that we see in the first century with women, of women being stoned, put in holes, and being stoned to death because they committed adultery. This could absolutely be true of Mary. So not only does she not have any type of social status, but she's kind of done for. Now, let's put this in our context real quick, Okay. I'm not trying to sit here and say like this is we need to help uh, pregnant teenage moms and that no I think we ultimately need to that's not what this sermon is about. But but some of you I know my mom was were a, a teenage mom, so I, I need you to think what was going through your mind. Um, in all that, what Mary is feeling, the tension, the worry that should be going on with inside of her. Just some stats so you're aware of a teenage mom even today, and it's far worse uh, than, than it was, or it's far worse uh, then than it is now. Just so you know, 50% of teenage moms uh, uh, only receive their high school diploma. If you're not a teenage mom, it's actually 90%, so almost double. The children of teenage mothers are more likely to drop out of school, experience health problems, be incarcerated during adolescence, give birth to a teenager themselves, or face an employment... One in five teenagers today have an abortion. Now, that's today. So as a teenage mom, a mom gets pregnant. MTV makes some kind of crazy show about her. Okay? And now, so here she is. And all she has is worry. She's freaking out. Even in our own culture, she doesn't know what she's going to do with her life. The stats are all against her, y'all. They're pushing against her. And it's far worse in the context Mary is in. Far worse. She's lucky if she lives. With that being said, Mary sings a song. Now, this is why we have to stop and ask the question, why are we seeing it from the perspective of the marginalized? Because in our culture, and I don't mean this to be demeaning at all. Again, my mom was a teenage mother. If you were a teenage mom, it's not, my point is this. No one grows up in, at, at like 10 and goes, you know what? I want to be a teenage mom. No, no one says, I just want my daughter to be a teen. I, I want her to be pregnant at like 15. No, that, that's not something in our, in our society that we would look to and go, yes, that's what we want. So immediately, again, I'm not trying to demean, but you can see how this is not something that is looked fondly upon. And so here is Mary, marginalized. Her testimony doesn't stand in court. She's a woman. She's second, third, fourth class. Now she's pregnant and lucky if she lives. And yet God uses her to teach us something about the coming of Jesus because all she has in this moment is Advent. All she has is to trust that God has said he's coming. This is her song. Starting in verse 46. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servants for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown great strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And he has brought down the mighty from their, thr- from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring, uh, forever. And Mary remained with her three months with Elizabeth three months and returned to her home. So here's what I want to do to finish our time together. I want to just roll a or bullet point, everything we can learn from what's going on from a poor, marginalized, pregnant teenager the first thing that we can learn, and I'm just going to, like I said, go through these bullet points the best I can, and then we'll get out of here. Here's the first thing. For our, t- for our time in waiting for Advent, the marginalized can teach us to rejoice when when our life is falling apart. So when Trump was getting elected, I was talking with someone, a friend whose pastors is a pa- whose husband is a pastor um, in downtown, and, and I, was just ta- I was just texting with her, and I was saying, how's it going? She was sitting with a bunch of undocumented people, and they were stressing out, and I had made this statement, and Give me grace, but I'm just being honest with you. I've prayed for persecution in the American church. Now, I don't know if you're supposed to do that, but I've honestly gone, like, God, like, like let us, like, feel the weight of what it really means to be, per, like, persecuted and, and be Christian so we could know whether we're in or out, right? Um, not the best thing to pray, but, but so, so I'm feeling this. And, and I, in that moment, Danae is her name, she just said something really beautiful. Um, she said, we don't need pers- persecution, but suffering might help. The poor can teach us how to suffer well. And I thought that was a beautiful statement. The reality is Mary's life is crumbling before her. And I quote, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit, listen to it, rejoices in God, my Savior. When the Grinch steals those presents on Christmas Eve, we've got a song the next day. The marginalized can teach us that. Hear me when those things, those trinkets, the Fitbits, the Xboxes, when they're gone, when they disappoint you because they're manufactured in such a way that they will do that, you need to combat that commercialism, that consumerism with the true story of Advent. That in the midst of all the things that are going on in the world, we can rejoice because God is good. The second thing that I think the poor and marginalized, um, for a time at Advent, the poor uh, and marginalized can teach us Um, is to rejoice, what we just said, because God sees them and sees us, hear me, and cares. So during this time, let us remember that God knows, and this is important for some of you, if you're about to experience Christmas alone, or you feel like this is a terrible time because you've lost family or friends, God has not missed you. The poor know this. They have to know this, because everyone else misses them. No one else cares about Mary's story or a testimony. She can't do much with what's going on, but God does. For let let's look at that word for. So they rejoice in verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. The third thing that we can learn from the marginalized is for our waiting in Advent, the marginalized can teach us to have a big God because we need, more appropriately, they need a big God. Look at verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear from generation to generation. This is what um, is, is a big deal. They, they are forced or, or put in a situation. Mary is now cornered in this idea of God, if you don't show up, I don't have my comforts of, of stuffing or turkey or Xboxes or Fitbits to find my joy in. When the Jordans are gone, when the Lexus commercials stop rolling, I don't have my joys in that. All I've got right now is what you have said to be true. The marginalized can teach us, when it all boils down, that is most important. That's most important. When it's all gone, Mary shows us, no, 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 I've got a big God, y'all. He flexes, and he's a big deal. But more than that, They recognize they're part of a story that's bigger than their own from generation to generation. I've known a lot of friends growing up who um, were born in the United States, but their parents were born in Mexico. And anybody who is an immigrant to this country and has kids, I promise you, 100% of the time, at least in my own experience, every single time you talk to them, you see first their work ethic is through the roof, and all they say over and over and over is, I want my kids to have a better life than me. Now, you want to know why they do this? Because their life was so crappy. They've, they're, they're, listen, I know my life, it's, it's, I'm done. I'm done with this. I, I know that I can't have this huge big deal that I always wanted, but I can give my kids what I always wanted. I can prepare them, set them up for success. They have a big view, a long story that they are a part of. Let us believe that. That Christmas of 2016 is not where it ends. There's something more going on. Let us think through what we're doing during this time. Continuing on, for our waiting in Advent, the marginalized can teach us that there is no room for pride and entitlement during the season. I want you to look at uh, your Bibles in verse 50. It says, he has mercy on those who fear him. Verse 52, he has exalted those of low degree. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. That's one side of God's holiness and his goodness, okay? So during this time, we recognize there's no room for swag, okay? But more than that, the backside is he repels or pushes against those who think they're awesome. Look at the backside of this. Uh, The other side of uh, of this, you'll see in verse 51, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, Verse 52, he has put down the mighty from their thrones. Verse 53, the rich he has sent away empty. Ask any parent of a child under 10 years old, ain't nobody like when their kids are, feel this sense of entitlement. I remember I was 17, 18 years old, and we had a friend who was older than us, and she had, they had a daughter who was about 7 years old, and she goes, well, that's mine anyway. And I thought, are you going to punch her now? Or do you want like, okay? Because the reality is, nobody likes the kid goes, that's mine. Oh, that, that, I deserve this. No, no, no. Hear me. You get what you get this Christmas. You are in the minority of the minority that you have presents under your tree this year. You are in the minority of the minority of the minority that you get to buy presents this year. Hear me. That is a gift from God to you. And if it's seen any other way, we've missed the point. God has blessed you. He has blessed you. There is no room for sass. There is no room for thinking you're big deal. You worked for it. You're awesome. Those were gifts from God to you. May we not be prideful. Mary teaches us in this moment, it's not about pride. I am your humble servant. Continuing on as we finish. For our waiting in Advent, the marginalized can teach us to remember that God ultimately does have a big plan. So you can see, um, if you look, in verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, and he has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. And then it goes on to Mary, Mary stayed there for three months. Um, I was probably about six months ago building this deck. We have an above-ground pool, and I'm using pallet wood to try to build this deck. And I'm building this deck, and a friend sent me, um, uh, text me a, a video, right? And so it's on YouTube. I click on the link, and I go to YouTube. And then I start watching this video, and then immediately I get tube-trapped, right? So, because you watch that one video, and of course, they know how to, like, infringe into your, inception into your mind that you have to watch one of the videos on the side. And so I, <laughs> I don't know how it happened, but I go from like working hard, building this deck. An hour later, I'm huddled up, hiding from the sun, watching something that has nothing to do with anything, like top 10 best football trick plays of all time, okay? It had nothing to do with anything. I was completely sidetracked by the task that is at hand. The marginalized can remind us, hey, listen, the trinkets that we're getting excited about They're trying to persuade you. They're trying to pull you this way. They're trying to to guide you that way. And they're good things, as long as they are, hear me, ultimately to grow the kingdom of God. So my mom, Jehovah's Witness, doesn't celebrate Christmas, um, but happens to always send birthday presents around Christmas and their birthdays. I'm like, how convenient. Um, Okay? And she sends these. And yesterday, in the mail, she sends uh, my oldest son, Corbin, uh, middle son, Titus, and my uh, youngest daughter, Eve, a Kindle each, a Kindle fire, okay? First of all whoa okay now you may not think it's a big deal but I was like playing kick a rock when I was a kid but regardless so they get this and here's what I have to do here's what I have to do immediately with these gifts as I'm opening them and you can ask the boys I stop and I go wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute and I'm thinking in my mind and all this all these emotions I'm in my mind I'm going Candace and I's ultimate plan is to make godly men and women that's our ultimate plan like we want them to live lives in such a way that Jesus smiles, we have certain rules. They have to have fun. Ultimately, when they do certain things, and they have to make Jesus smile. If they're not doing those things, and I had to ask the question: Are these Kindles going to do that? Now, I'm not saying there's something intrinsically wrong with this Kindle Fire, right? I started playing with it. No, get out of here. Um, okay, but, but, but the question I had to ask was. Is this helping that? Not just is it hurting it, well, they're fine, but will this be part of the progressive reality of making godly men and women? And if it's not, you may think I'm a Scrooge, but no Kindle. So now I have to think through the gifts my children are getting. More appropriately, I have to think through the gifts I am getting, because hear me, this is what Mary reminds us of, God has a big plan. We are part of something far more From generation to generation, God is restoring Israel. He is a kingdom that never ends. He is doing something. And if this season of Advent does not unleash the fact that we are part of something bigger and better than silly trinkets, then we have missed it. If we don't get those things to grow the kingdom of God, we have missed it. My prayer for us during this time is that we would recognize it's not that we have too much stuff. It's sometimes we have too much of the wrong stuff. We need to remember those things have purposes. They are means to a different end. We do not view view those trinkets and toys the way the world does. They have a purpose to lead us to God the Father ultimately expanding the kingdom of Jesus Christ. If we're not doing that during this season, we've missed it. My prayer is that we would see Mary points us in the right direction and so will all the others as we see the perspective from the poor and marginalized. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for who you are. We're grateful, God, for the opportunity to be able to do what we're doing right now, um, which is talking about your word and learning. We pray that you would, according to Ephesians 1, open the eyes of our understanding, that our hearts can be enlightened, that we can see what we need to see. And then, according to Colossians 1, that we would grow in knowledge and understanding so that we would live a life that is pleasing to you, blameless. So we can learn these things, we can see from the perspective of what you did through your servant Mary. And be reminded that this present reality we live in and the age in which we stand is vying for our attention away from the kingdom of God as is every age before us. Our prayer in this moment, Holy Spirit, is that we would be faithful. Let us be faithful. As we talked about last week, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us lay aside the sin that so easily holds on to us and clings to us. And let us run ultimately looking at you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you so much for that, your example, Jesus, to see. We're reminded of you during this season. It's your story that we're a part of. We, like Mary, sit in the tension and long for you to be born into the world. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.